You are now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Hey, welcome to Sound of Sanity. I am Nathan, your humble and obedient host. What? We've also got Benjamin Solzer, the preacher who's a teacher of sanity. Hello. Ben, why don't you introduce the man, the myth, the legend, the person they've been waiting for, the creme de la creme. It's Jacob Mensel, the pastor who's a master of sanity. Hi. (laughs) welcome welcome dear listener to the podcast this is the third in a recent series of episodes where we've talked about books that we've been reading and it is now my turn to talk about the books that i've been reading i have two books i've been reading one of which i will i think come back and talk even more about but i can at least introduce the fact that i've been reading it it is called legacy of ashes the history of the CY, the CYA. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> See ya. No. Cover your yeah, yeah, yeah. agency. <clears throat> Cover your agency. Yeah, well, maybe they should have based on this book. Uh, the History of the CIA by Tim Weiner, I'm going to say, because I reject the other pronunciation, even if it is correct. <laughs> <laughs> this guy is a Pulitzer Prize winning guy. And basically, a whole bunch of files got declassified somewhere in the Audis, if I'm not mistaken. And so he set out to write the true and definitive history of the CIA. I've not finished this book. I think I'd like to talk more in detail about this book and the things that I've learned about it on, from it on this very show. Maybe I'm a, a big dorky dum-dum. And I was just well, going to say that. From the fact. <laughs> Don't know what that has to do anything, but yes. I mean, maybe everybody else is just like (laughs) the 20th century has been miserable, hellish cesspool cesspool of lies, lies. (laughs) 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 fraud and conspiracies, and lies, fraud, conspiracies that you know, institutional authority has been shot through since at least World War II. Maybe uh, you guys are all ahead of me with your bow tied people and your Twitters and your stuff like that. But boy, howdy, does the CIA <laughs> suck. <coughs> and boy, howdy, have they never been good at all. I mean, I think the thesis statement that I'm going to come up with from this book, and to be fair, the author wants me to come up with this thesis statement. It would be interesting to go and then read like a book by, you know, one of the CIA's like official history of the CIA just to see how they portray all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But if even a tenth of what this guy's talking about is true and not just his bias, then and I think it is. I mean, he documents everything really well. It's a well-written book. But I think my thesis statement is a we threw just war theory out a century or two ago and Everything's just been horrible since then. And uh, B, we dropped those bombs on the Japanese. And after that, you've killed your conscience. You've decided pragmatism is the name of the game. 
And so why not do study mind control? Why not fund coups in other countries and get lots of innocent people killed? Why not throw money at problems and train people within Soviet Russia to rebel? And then, you know, you're just going to get all these people killed. Why, why not appropriate funds that don't have oversight from Congress? Why not? It's just like, this isn't new. Everything's been as terrible as it is now since the 1940s. Like we, I don't know, you know, you watch like a Jason Bourne movie, one of these movies that have a real cynical view of surveillance state. We got to check in with Langley. Yeah, exactly. That kind of stuff. And you're like, well, I suppose there's some truth to this, but probably also there's good people that are just doing their job. And then you read a book like this and you're like, yeah, maybe maybe not. (laughs) Sure. I mean, there are, but they're just ineffectual peons in a broken Evil. Evil. Machine. Machine. And so I think a lot of our listeners are probably already on this page or on the same page, and so was I. But it is eye-opening to just read the full, I'm going to say, litany of it. I mean, it is just like, yuck. Roosevelt, Eisenhower, you know, presidents that people respect all sort of, well, do what you want to do. Just don't get caught. Mm -hmm. And then we... You know, the blood that we've spilt, the torture that we've engaged in, the secret prisons without any kind of oversight that we, you know, the Abu Ghraib type stuff that we've set up. Again, since your beloved 1950s with your dresses and your uh, women and stuff like that, everybody likes the 1950s. It's horrible. So I am actually in a weird way, maybe just because I'm reactionary towards everything, I'm reactionary towards people that are reactionary. So I don't actually like takedowns of institutional authority usually like i think i think it's good to have respect for government i'd like to teach my kids to even with somebody like joe biden say president biden and have some respect for him i think god puts us under even wicked rulers for a reason i don't have some weird interpretation of romans where i'm i'm like well actually it means we don't have to ever obey i think i think our government's our government so i don't want to And Nero was Caesar. And Nero was Caesar, for crying out loud. And it would have been very easy for the Apostle Paul to write in some caveats, but instead he wanted us in that pressure cooker, and we should be in that pressure cooker. That's where we belong. So to simply blithely, as certain popular Christian authors have done recently, say, well, if it's an unjust law, I don't have to obey it. Problem solved. That's just another way of saying every man does what's right in his own eyes, which which doesn't work. Try reading the book of Judges. So... I mean, I'm a fan of like going to the hospital to have our babies. I do. I am dead set against going in with the attitude that this is a baby mill that just wants to give us a C-section and we have to do everything we can to defend ourselves against the medical system that wants to take advantage. It's like, no, I maybe it's crazy. Maybe I'm wrong, but I can't live my life like that. I need to have some trust in institutional authority in order to function because mm-hmm. I don't want to have a home birth. That's fine if you do, but I'm scared of home births. And so what am I supposed to do? Or I, or I don't think they'd be good for us for any number of reasons. So in, anyway, I'm not, and I don't think I am an anti-institutional authority guy. I would love to read the book that said, well, it was complicated, and the C, but the CIA did what they could, but also everybody's always failing and morally compromised. And Mm-hmm. That, that, that'd that be a good book. But man, this book was an eye-opener in terms of just how cynical, just how just how pragmatism has ruled Did you the finish day. it? I have not finished it. I want to finish it, and I want to talk. I want to share more from this book on this podcast. I want to talk us through some of the things that I learned. 
I haven't really collated it in my mind yet, but it's just kind of hilarious. It's like reading the thing that I keep thinking of is Wiley E. Coyote. You know, he just comes up with another scheme and then he, and then it blows up in his face. That's the history of our, our doings with Soviet Russia. Hey, we'll train some guys to parachute in there and they parachute in. And then there's like guys waiting to shoot them. <laughs> I mean, we're, and then we're like, ah, we'll get some spies from over there and we'll give them some money and they, they can foment rebellion. And uh, so we give them some money and some training. And then there's some guys waiting to shoot them. <laughs> and that's just the story over. And, and we're like, we'll build a tunnel. They're like guys waiting to shoot us. On the other end of the I mean, it, it really is like a wily e. coyote. You do actually sort of have to laugh at just the absurdity of it. Only you're, you're like real people died with every one of these. And I'm all for real people dying in war. I'm not like against, you know, there's a certain kind of liberal person, an old school liberal now, not like the the current, let's bomb Russia liberals, but like real liberals of the 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 20th century style would, would just be like, well, we hate all war. We don't think anybody should ever shoot anybody. No, I'm all for shooting people. But just the the callow spending of human life, the the stupid plans, the fact that no, the left hand never knew what the right hand was doing, that people- As can, a matter of principle. As a matter of principle. Yeah. That's one of the things that Dennis Johnson highlights in uh, Tree of Smoke. Yeah, I'll have to read that. Yeah. That the whole principle of the right hand not knowing what the left hand was doing is integral to the the function of the CIA as a sort of shadow organization. It's just amazing. It was, an, it was, it was a pretty fun- portrayal of it from from a man whose uh family was highly involved in it in in dennis johnson so yeah i mean i think if people have read jean lecaire or if anybody's watched the television show that's been popular recently slow horses which is about mi6 but it's kind of the same thing it's just like you have all these bumbling bureaucrats and then you have malicious actors that find their way in like like the dude that just wants to do mind control experiments or do sex experiments or something like right. he can find a way to get funding. And the director of the CIA is never going to know about it. Certainly the congressional oversight people. It's just really fascinating reading this book and realizing like the way that they made their money, like they didn't go to Congress from, from the 1940s on. Sure. They go to Congress and they get some funds, but then they have all these weird slush funds and I don't even begin to know how to describe it. I mean, this book has a wealth of, detail but it's been hidden money covert money millions of american dollars that that they've just kind of squirreled away from the very beginning as a matter of principle and so it's a book to make you angry it's a book to really make you rethink the entire 20th century and i'm sure that there have been good rebuttals or interesting rebuttals i mean this guy this guy wants to portray the cia that way like that's that's the whole point it's the premise that he's starting from but he's got the what do people like to say receipts. now? He's got the receipts, man. He's got recently declassified conversations between the, the directors and things that have come to light where it's like the stories that they told about overthrowing Guatemala, about these different things that are supposed to be the success stories of the CIA have just been, anytime they had any success, it was usually because things just kind of went their way and because of a lot of people died, usually innocent people in some other, you know, like, we started a riot. We accidentally started a riot. Hundreds of innocent Guatemalans were killed, but we managed to depose this direct this dictator. Just the fact that 
Iran exists the way that it exists because of the CIA, because of us propping up mm-hmm. a certain despot, because of Winston Churchill in his waning post-stroke days as the chief intelligence guy in England. Like the Americans and the English were got together and they were like, we need oil. I mean, it's like all the stuff that you see, you know, George Clooney makes dumb movies about, you know, but it's, it's pretty fascinating and pretty disgusting. What's the name of it again? Legacy of, of Ashes. Ashes by cool. Tim Weiner, as I will call him. I-E uh, or E-I? It is E-I. Some, so you have some justification. Yeah. Yeah. You do. <laughs> Looks like he also wrote a book called Enemies, The History of the FBI. I will be very tempted to read that one, and I think I will discover the same thing. I have read a biography of Hoover. Hoover. That's interesting because you have one central figure that defined and controlled the FBI for decades, and he was obviously nuttier than a fruitcake. Like they wear women's clothing and stuff like that. He's a weird dude and not a good dude. But at least there you're like, we're looking at the pathology of an individual man, not the pathology of a, a system. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And the fascinating thing about the FBI is that it is the pathology of a system. It does attract bad people. You mean the CIA? The, sorry, 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 the CIA, yeah. It, it does attract bad people and weird people and blustery people and people who want to get ahead. But also it's just like nobody ever had a concrete vision for this thing. Nobody ever just said – we need to be on top of intelligence, so let's stop. Let's think about what that needs to look like, how it needs, you know, what the hierarchy needs to be. We felt so threatened by Soviet Russia that we were just always rushing to make sure we had something, anything. Let's throw money at things. Let's, and then the people, the field operatives, would report back, and then they and say, "Hey, everything's terrible, and we know nothing." And then the people at Langley or whatever would. Be like, well, that's not going to bring in the dollars. The president can't know that that's. And so they say, everything's great. We know lots of stuff. Here's the stuff we know. And then we're like totally surprised by the Chinese invading Korea. The Korean War is just like a huge failure for the CIA because the CIA keeps saying like, it's fine. It's fine. It's just a couple insurgents. It's fine. It's fine. And then suddenly we're basically in a war with Korea. And oops, misread the situation. Yeah, misread the situation. And the thing is, boots on the ground, they didn't misread the situation usually. It's just that there's no way that this information ever... Yeah, anyone who's ever had a bad job or worked in a big bureaucracy or worked for a university... You'd love Tree of Smoke, man. Yeah, I'll, 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 have, to, I'll have to read it. It's frustrating. You get angry. done with the CIA book and then you pick up Tree of Smoke and you'll have a lot of fun with it. I will. I think. I will. It kind of makes me mad, so I don't know if that's fun, but it's an interesting kind of mad. What is Tree of Smoke about? It's Vietnam hmm. and a CIA agent, intelligence divisions in Vietnam running around. And it follows a couple of different people on different levels. And <clears throat> it's a big, it's like 750 pages. It's a big book. Novel? Um, it's or? a novel by Dennis Johnson. Right. And uh, if I recall, it was a little slow at the outset, but. It was, man, it was such a compelling, it lives with me. It was such a compelling vision of of Vietnam that felt like somebody who'd been there and lived it and was an insider. And yeah, it's, and it's, and it's also an homage to Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now at the same time. It's just like, it's got a lot Hmm. that just makes it really interesting. Hmm. And 
the farther away I get from that book, the more I look back on it as maybe really just really great. Yeah, I'll read that. I, there's a new Hoover biography I want to read. I think I'm I'm becoming a person that likes to read books about these things, uh, for better or worse. There's a book on the OSS that just came out that I want to read, which obviously the CIA comes out of the OSS and everything the OSS was doing, um, and a lot of the same people. So I'd like to go back and read that. It's interesting. It's eye-opening. Here's a random anecdote. The CIA was not able to predict when the Soviets would actually do their first nuclear test. And they said they could like, yeah, we'll know if they get the bomb, but it caught us by complete surprise. And we were so freaked out that Eisenhower is asking his generals and stuff. Do we need to launch? Like we get, we get Mm -hmm. wind of their first test. We find out about it weeks later than, you know, because the CIA knows nothing and can't do anything. (laughs) And then, and then we're so shocked by it that Eisenhower's like, oh, ah, they've got nukes. Uh, uh, do I do push them? We need the... to launch on Moscow. Do we do the launch? Moscow. Moscow, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Thanks, guys. And, you know, luckily they didn't end the world. It's just something. Yeah. So, makes you appreciate Dr. Strangelove yeah. even more. Makes you think Dr. Strangelove just is not satire. Maybe... Is that on a, that's on our watch list for the year. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That and Apocalypse Now, actually. So we'll, oh, we'll have, we'll have cool. plenty of uh, opportunity to talk more about this stuff, and that's another reason for me to read Tree of Smoke. Yes, sir. And maybe I'll read Failsafe, the serious novel that Strange Love is an adaptation, a comedic adaptation of. Yeah, also, the, also a TV movie of its own. Yes, uh, Sidney Lumet, actually. Everything connects, guys. Oh, man. Uh, Sidney Lumet, I should say. Lumet. Yeah, but Failsafe was famously a failure of a, or a movie that no one cared about because Strange Love got there first and <laughs> did it better and did it funny oh that's another one that i was reading i don't know what happened to it i misplaced it lament yeah <clears throat> it's good it's worth finishing i suspect i haven't started yet i suspect i have a son who stole it i, th- I suspect i left it laying around the house and it's around the bed of one of my boys he could do worse <clears throat> he's the kind of guy that would want to read that book for sure mm-hmm. well he'd so. learn something and i don't think he'd be super corrupted by it so no yeah, yeah I, Lamette was an interesting guy. Uh, my other book, actually, that I want to talk about, I'll, I'll, I think we'll have this year, Lord willing, more chances to talk about this very book and the CIA and American foreign policy, the Marshall Plan. It sounds like it's all going to tie together very nicely. So, and plus, our world ties together with that. But my other book actually is a Hollywood expose, which I would also recommend, although this one I wouldn't give to your son because it does talk about many of the risque things that happen in Hollywood. It is called The Devil's Candy, and it is a story of the making of a movie that no one remembers or cares about now, but was very hyped at the time, which is the 1990 adaptation of Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities with Tom Hanks, of all people. Just the person you want for a cynical satire Mm -hmm. of Wall Street. In 1990. Well, he had an edge to him back then. He did, but that's just when he's about to turn the corner and do Philadelphia and, and Gump and all that stuff. So, well, the story is what was interesting about it is that Bonfire of the Vanities, if people don't know, it's this takedown of Wall Street and Wall Street culture and the moneyed people of New York and all this stuff and the hypocrisy and the vanity and the sexual debauchery. That's what Tom Wolfe was writing about. Well, Hollywood decides they're going to make a movie out of the book, and then it turns into a giant debacle of money and power and sex and 
Debauchery. Self-interest and debauchery. And the book is arguably an even more entertaining watching big people fail at life little book than Bonfire of the Vanity. I don't know. I'm not a big Bonfire of the Vanities guy. I know some people swear by it. But this book was written by Julie Salomon, who was a reporter and movie critic who was allowed to just hang out day in, day out with the makers of the movie. And so she saw everything from beginning to end. She came on. So the studio was like, we got to make Bonfire of the Vanities. Warner Brothers buys Bonfire. And then they get Tom Hanks, which there you go. People will say that was that was the the big mistake because Tom Hanks wasn't right for the material. It's supposed to be like this really hard edged, unlikable guy. And Tom Hanks, even when he's playing hard edged, is just a guy that the audience roots Has for. Has always like that's right. Yeah. And they don't want to It's why he's ascended and why he's Right. And probably a CIA asset at this point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Connect it all. Exactly. So they get Tom Hanks and then they get Brian De Palma who is the famous bad boy artiste of the Spielberg Lucas movie brat generation. He's Spielberg's best friend. And he ended up doing horror movies, kind of taking the mantle from, well, very explicitly taking the mantle from Hitchcock. At least in terms of the surface level of technique. Yeah, and technique and his showmanship. Movies, his movies, some of them are good. Some of our listeners perhaps will have seen The Untouchables, his most mainstream movie. and Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible, of course, the first Mission Impossible. Two classics of their, two minor classics, perhaps, of their genre, respective genres. Certainly, there are sequences in both movies that are classic sequences. And De Palma is a master of cinematic craft and building a great sequence like the that wonderful homage to the Odessa steps in this very silly scene, actually, in Untouchables, where the baby carriage is going down the mm-hmm. steps and they're all shooting each other. And it's, it's awesome. Um, and obviously, Mission Impossible has these great, I don't know if it's much of a movie, but it's got these wonderful set pieces. Set pieces. And De Palma did Carrie, and he did things like Blowout and Dress to Kill and these suspense movies, many of which I wouldn't recommend. He's one of the guys that he's kind of the dark reflection. Like Spielberg gets mainstream success. Lucas gets mainstream success. De Palma's lurid. De Palma's lurid and trashy and a bad, but also maybe more of an artist in some some ways. At least he would see himself that way than either one of those guys. I don't think we would say that, but some people would say that. He's pure cinema, you know, in a way that Spielberg wants to tug at your heartstrings. Lucas wants the kids, but mm-hmm. De Palma just wants to do. He whatever. wants the shot. He wants the shot, man. Yeah. 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 He wants the, the yeah. editing rhythms, the music, the what, what is it that only cinema can do? Now, of course. Spielberg and Lucas are masters of that and masters of putting it in a mainstream package, which De Palma never could, but except for on rare occasions like the Untouchables and stuff like that. Yeah, he's kind of this bad boy. And but but this bad boy that had had enough success coming off of the Untouchables that he really wanted to go mainstream. He wanted the respect of a Spielberg or Lucas or their other contemporaries like Scorsese or Coppola. And so he takes on this job. He's totally wrong for it. You know, he's. He's lurid, he's pulpy, he's over the he's sexy in a way that's not objective, you know, like Tom Wolf is mocking all this stuff. De Palma just kind of is all this mm-hmm. stuff. So they make a weird decision to get to Tom Hanks, and then they make a weird decision to get De Palma. And then this book just follows the whole process through. And it's pretty fascinating just seeing the Hollywood just in terms of actually Boots on the ground. So we said the Lamette book is like a good look at how making movies actually works. And this is what a camera does. This is what a screenwriter actually does. That kind of thing. 
this book actually follows a real story through the studio system. And so you see what is the, what are actually the relationship of the different stars of the producers. So it's Tom Hanks shows up and Tom Hanks, as the author portrays him, like he really wants to be liked and wants to appear to be an everyman. So he kind of hangs out with everybody for a little while. And then Bruce Willis is also in the movie and Bruce Willis has an entourage and bodyguards and aunt nobody talking to Bruce Willis and Bruce Willis ain't talking to nobody and he doesn't give access. Like Bruce Willis is nobody's friend. He goes to his trailer. He has a stand in, you know, he spends as little time with anybody as possible. And then you have Melanie Griffith, the female star who's, you know, very sexually wounded person and very popular for that reason. She's a working girl. People might remember, but you've got her personality and you've got the personality of all these producers. So it's an interesting book just about, the Hollywood process of that time from start to finish. I think you'd understand something more about how a Marvel movie is made or something like that. You see like, I don't know, there's several things that are interesting about the book. You see like the creative ricochet that happens where we've cast Tom Hanks because we want this movie to be commercial. We want it to be likable. And so suddenly the white people in our movie, the white protagonist of our movie is likable which causes a problem because Wolf is talking about race. That's one of the big things in the novel is is race and a guy that steps onto the wrong side of the tracks and gets in big trouble is basically the story of the novel. And Wolf just make Wolf makes black people, white people, everybody it doesn't matter. They're all grist for his satirical mill. But once you've cast Tom Hanks as your hero, you've thrown off that balance. So suddenly we have a really cool white guy which, crap, what are we going to do with all the black guys? Now they're just monsters. So we have to figure out a way to make them likable now because we can't just have Tom Hanks. We can't just have white hero, black bad guys. That's not going to play even in 1990. So instead of casting the person that should play the judge, like they have they have these great white actors that are going to play this great white part of the judge who pronounces the sentence at the end of the whole movie. And they're like, let's get Morgan Freeman, who's wrong for the role. And we'll play it completely differently. But everybody likes Morgan, like Morgan Freeman then and now, and especially then is like, he's the black guy that you bring in. I mean, glory is the classic example of this. And you just like give him a bunch of money and then he, he makes it okay. How would you say what? (laughs) White, White paternalism. What some people might say, not me. Yeah. But what other people might say is he uncle Tom's it. He uncle Tom's it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I don't think of a way to say that, but yeah, he's let me do a really credible job of presenting a white person's point of view on how black people should behave. And let me give the speech about how it's not the color of our skin. It's we need to take responsibility for ours. You know, it's like that kind of thing. So they bring in Freeman. They pay Freeman a whole bunch of money to be so that they can get the balance right. And it's just a really interesting portrait especially if you've done any creative work of how you make one decision here and then you have to make another decision here and then you make another decision to balance that one and by the end of making those decisions you have something that's not at all what you intended to make and it's not because anyone at any point made a decision to deviate from tom wolf's book or anything like that but you're just you make a decision here you it's what george lucas has always said about temple of doom we didn't set out to make a dark movie we just made a dark decision here a dark decision there and then we stepped back from it and we realized oh we're both going through divorces and we hate everybody and this movie's really dark and this kind of feels like an excuse when you hear him say that but if you've actually been in the weeds with a creative project you realize sometimes 
you don't have the big picture until you step back at the very end. Yeah, and sometimes you don't even have the bandwidth to ever step back, <clears throat> even in the process. Because, I mean, if you know, even something as simple as a, as a sermon or an essay or something like that can be developed with a bunch of different parts in isolation. Right. And then put together in sections without ever considering the whole until the last minute or until maybe you're even up on the platform if you know you know you have the kind of week where somebody dies or you know something happens in the life of your church that just prevents you from being as well prepared as you'd like well you've got you know all your little segments your focus on these verses or those verses and this big idea here and then you can throw them all together and then edit the first part and then come back later and edit the second part and never have the ability to take in the cumulative effect of the whole until you're you're delivering it and then realize wow this Uh-oh. is not what i thought it was or yay or or yay mm-hmm. you know god god was with me and superintended this in a way that you know i couldn't have on my own i needed to be carried and thank god for that or well i'm on the fly here and i Actually, what I thought our congregation needed last night or yesterday or Friday is very different than what I think it needs this morning based on any number of other things too. Right. That's just something as simple as a as a 30 to 50 minute sermon. When you get into any advanced creative process, a book, a novel, a podcast, a movie, if you've read Lumet's book mm-hmm. about the level, you know, how dissociated filming scenes can be, how disordered everything can be and how much the movie itself is actually made in the editing room and you're simply stuck with the choices that were made in the process and the and the director's ability to hold it all in his head and actually accurately know what he has and understand how it's all going to work together it's a really challenging thing to do and yeah i actually think a sermon's not a bad analogy because a sermon whether you're done or not it's you're going to deliver it on Sunday morning at 1025, you know, right. And movies are kind of like that. If we've already set the release date, we already have stars under contract. We've, we have the budget that we have, right. The, the train has left the station. And so you better hope that you had a good conception. You better hope that your, your instincts were right on this scene and that scene and this scene and that scene. And that when you hit the editing room, all those scenes work together to make the movie you envisioned or right. something good enough or something different that's better. I mean, mm-hmm. what you see with the Marvel formula, <clears throat> the Mar- Marvel has basically, I think, built an entire industry out of the way that Robert Downey Jr. likes to work. And so they just have everybody work that way. And so their formula is let's have a story and let's have scenes, but then let's have some play and let's find some things on the set. And then let's go back and shoot some more material and script some more stuff. To And so it's very fluid. And when that works, you get Iron Man. When it doesn't work, you get Ant-Man, Quantumania or whatever. And as they've gotten more in the weeds with their own mythology, we're into phase four and stuff like that. There's all kinds of problems. There's moral problems. There's all kinds of things you could say about Marvel. But I think one of the problems is that they probably need to abandon that model at this point. They have so many moving parts. They just need to reset everything in terms of how they build. Right. And I I think they'd be well served by saying, we're going to write a script. It's going to be locked before we ever shoot a frame of yeah. film or a, a pixel of digital. And it's going to be part of, so what, what they need to do is they need to map out an entire 
the entire next phase beyond these are the movies we want to make with the characters we want to make and these are how the properties will make us money and this is generally the story we want to tell the story of each of those movies and how they interact with one another and how they work and how and their ability to stand alone right all has to be locked down well ahead of time yeah if they're going to if they're going to recover and regain anything they had the only chance they have of people looking back and saying this phase was an anomaly and not that the MCU ended with Endgame is that they just reset absolutely everything about their machinery and they have so much invested in it you can't see them actually doing it you know they need an auteur they need somebody and maybe not even an auteur but somebody who's just sort of like a a a pop genius on the level of a John Favreau who, yeah. who cracked Iron Man and who cracked uh, Star Wars mm-hmm. with the Mandalorian to come back and crack it again for Marvel. Hire James Gunn to reset the board or something. Yeah, yeah I mean, DC maybe, maybe already did it. Buddy. Let's let's hope it, that this is a godless of a man as he is. Let's hope that Gunn actually does it with DC. It's the only exciting thing going in terms of pop blockbuster superhero stuff is hey, there's a guy who has the potential to do something cool. Like, whatever you want to say about him, however much you may hate him, <clears throat> however morally bankrupt he may be, we can all acknowledge that there are few people out there with a level of talent and vision that are actually capable of doing something with these properties on this level, and he's he's one of them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we'll see about Marvel. The other things that were interesting about this book, it was interesting just to see, to see the level. Of, I don't know. There's there's a scene where in the book where, I mean, a scene from life, a, a real-life incident that the book records accurately where they're trying to cast the girl and a young Uma Thurman comes in. And just the amount to which, I mean, this, this isn't a surprise to anyone who's watched Hollywood, but it was just interesting to watch it actually play out in real time in this book. The degree to which sex is a is commodified and the degree to which if I'm going to an audition and I'm young Uma Thurman, who's about to break out and all these things, and I want to get the part, I'm going to wear a miniskirt um, because that's going to give me an edge. And the degree to which it does give her an edge, and she doesn't actually end up get, getting the part, but it, man, Sex is so commodified. Another thing that's that's interesting when we talk about this all the time on our movie podcast, Sandy at the Movies, which you should listen to. There's never a hot girl in the background of a scene that walks by that some casting director didn't have to cast and some costume designer didn't have to costume and the director didn't have to pick her from 13 potentials. Uh, and so there's a scene in this movie where that I don't think any one of us, if we watched the movie, would probably give that much thought to because it actually tells a legitimate story point, even though I'm not sure we'd feel comfortable, or I know we wouldn't feel comfortable doing this if we were making the movie ourselves. But Tom Hanks goes for a walk and his wife is dumb and a nag and everything. And he walks by some girls that are jogging and he kind of checks checks them out, looks at their posteriors, right? And so this movie takes us through, or this book takes us through the casting of the posteriors and they actually film a whole version of the scene. And then they're like, this doesn't work. The, these girls don't, f- Tom Hanks is like a King of the Titan of the industry. He only is going to lust after the best of the best. So these girls that we cast with their, their kind of flat bottoms, that's not going to work. Let's 
go back to central casting, go back to costuming. And so the amount of time and money and attention spent on something like that is not something that we're unaware of. Someone who watches movies with their eyes open should say be. it. Yeah. And then you have the story that's like, that brings it home. It's like a bunch of men sitting in a little screening room. Literally going over examining footage. the shapes of women's bottoms for a one cut yeah. shot. Yeah. In the movie, it's like Tom Casting, Hanks. sending women back, shooting the shot, saying they're not good enough. They're not sexually appealing enough in this shot. To tell the story we want to tell. To tell the story that we want to tell. We go back to central casting. We spend more money. We get more women. We vet their backsides. And then we get the shot again. Which means some hopeful young actress is coming in and she knows there's only, you know, she's, she's not unaware there's exactly one thing that they're interested in. And so it's going to be their piece of meat. Make sure she's dressed in the right way. And then they're going to evaluate her sell it. entirely on that. And she hopes it's part of her break. She's just hoping she gets to the point where she can be Uma Thurman, the new hotness, dressing in a miniskirt to actually come read a scene instead of just being you know, the bottom that jogs by. And so, yeah, it does open your eyes to that sort of thing. There's actually, this isn't a sexual thing, but there is a shot in the movie that is the most expensive shot in Hollywood history. It is a single shot that cost $80,000. And it is a shot of an airplane landing. The only part of the story that it tells is Tom Hanks got home, but De Palma is like this, you know, a filmmaker's filmmaker. And he's like, I don't want the boring shot of the airplane. And so he gets his assistant director to figure out, like, what's a cool shot we can do of an airplane landing? And so they start doing it and they get into the weeds and they end up figuring out, you know, if we go to such and such airport at such and such time and if we use computers to figure out what time in the year the sun will be right here and if we can get a plane to go by in the 15 minutes where the sun will we'll get this really cool shot where, like, the sun and the city and the everything will line up. And they end up by the end of, it's not like anybody ever said, let's spend $80,000 on this shot. But by the end of the day, they've spent $80,000 getting about what ends up being in the final movie, about three seconds of an airplane landing. Something that maybe you'd say, oh, that's, that's pretty. But probably you'd just be like, well, an airplane landed. Mm-hmm. Now Tom Hanks is in New York again. Mm. Which is where somebody like Steven Spielberg is always going to cut his losses. Yes. Because he's focused on, you know, a story. A story, yeah. Yeah. Although it makes you wonder, like, Steven Spielberg, for one of these guys, is economical. But right. what kind of stories like this exist? For him, his, too. For him, too. Yeah, I just, I remember, I've seen, what was it? Oh, it was it was Matt Damon talking about Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm his first time working with Spielberg and how economical Spielberg was about the takes and the scenes and how he didn't, he didn't deliver, you know, didn't feel like he'd really given a great performance. And on one of the first scenes he shot for him and Spielberg called it and they moved on it. And he was like, wait, 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 I, that was nowhere near, you know, my, my best take. And Spielberg's response was something like, well, we could we could make a scene or we could make a movie, and I'm making a movie, and that was the end of it. Yep. And mm. so, but Damon's just sort of like on his heels. Like, not every shot has to be perfect, and not every scene has to be perfect. Just it has to all work together as a movie, and good enough is good enough. Like, mm-hmm. and this is working with Steven Spielberg. Well, and I'm. That's just a. 
a nice genial Steven Spielberg way of saying, you're playing in my sandbox, so you better bring your A game on the, every take. <laughs> yeah, don't expect me to, like, this is not your movie. This right. is not about you. You and are so, a palette on my brush, buddy. Like, <laughs> Lamette actually talks about that, too. He says in making movies somewhere, he'll always, with big actors and stuff, he'll, he'll find like a, I'm going to walk into the bank shot, and he'll shoot that first, and he'll print it first take. Yeah, I remember uh, him talking about because that. Because he too. wants them to realize, like, I'm not going to do 40 takes of everything. No, you better bring your A game. Yeah. Don't waste my time, and I won't waste yours. Yeah, and we'll all go home by 5 o'clock, and we can actually spend some time with our dogs and <laughs> whatever. And another fascinating thing about this book is just how much Hollywood is high school, how much there are these venal, selfish, petty people that running everything. It's actually the same thing I, you learn from the CIA book, same thing you learn about reading reading about any corporation or any history of anything. It's just like people are pretty selfish and petty. So there's a scene where a section of this book where De Palma is not doing auditions, but doing rehearsals with his actors. And a couple of his producers want to sit in on those rehearsals. And De Palma says, no, you can't. You'll, I don't want a bunch of suits, you know, distracting my actors while we're rehearsing. And so he locks them out like literally. And, they show up expecting, oh, we'll be able to get in, and then they can't. And so they like knock on the door. They can't get in. They make phone. They call. They blow up De Palma's phone. They blow up the phone of his assistant. They finally call De Palma's agent and get his agent to call him to say, let us in. And there's like this whole day where everybody's just at war over whether these these two executives will be able to come and sit in some chairs. And there's that kind of stuff all throughout the book. And I don't, uh, yeah, sure. Hollywood's venal and selfish and horrible, but I actually just thought it was more of a good reminder that everybody's venal and selfish and horrible. Like you don't, ex- mm-hmm. you don't escape selfish ambition wherever you can go. I, I've worked in church adjacent ministries for a long time. I just, you don't escape selfish ambition and petty quarrels and things like that. That's why the apostle Paul probably felt like he needed to say, Hey, in humility, uh, uh, think that others are better than, you know, don't do that mm-hmm. because we actually are tempted to be quite petty, but it's, it's always kind of maybe in a bad way, maybe in a good way. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a little bit, maybe even maliciously fun to see the Hollywood exaggerated version of it. Where you, so much money's on the line and so much power's on the line and so much self-importance is on the line. And they are all just the most petty people in the world. So those are the things that you'll get out of the book. I think you'll also get De Palma is he's an interesting guy. He's a bad guy in a lot of ways, but it is interesting to watch a real artist stuck in a system that's run by salesmen and trying to him trying to negotiate that, him trying to give them what they want, but also bring some real heart to it, bring some real point of view to it. I don't know. I always think of Raymond Chandler who said something like to exceed the limits of the formula without destroying it is the dream of every writer who's not like a horrible hack. And I think that's true. Like my dream when I do a podcast is to give enough people the podcast that they want that they'll listen and come back and give us money on Patreon, but also to give them the podcast that I want, that I think that they should want. And negotiating the space between those two two things, figuring out whether there's space between those two things where the space is between those two things is an interesting thing. And so this is like a big exaggerated grand guignol sort of version of that, but (coughs) in a famous failure where 
nothing worked mm-hmm. and it was a giant bomb and no one cared. But I did think that was pretty interesting. You do actually end up feeling pretty bad for De Palma. He took an impossible job. They'd already, they'd already cast Hanks. They'd already, they already had basically decided we're going to take a book that's a biting satire and make it like a nice good guy narrative. Like it's, it was already a thing that no one would be interested. It had already failed. <coughs> it was like, it was still born before anyone even got, got a chance to work on it. But watching all these people, these talented people toil mightily to try and make it work and then just have it fail. Spielberg is a supporting character in the book, by the way. He is De Palma's best friend. And so they have lunch together a couple of times and Spielberg go, comes to the screenings and helps Spielberg has actually been to all of De Palma's screenings. Spielberg never has De Palma to his screenings. Spielberg never has anyone to his screenings. Those are very private for him, but he'll show like when they screen the movie for an audience and get their little report cards and stuff like that. Spielberg shows up and helps De Palma talk through. So it's pretty interesting to watch Steven Spielberg, the friend versus Steven Spielberg, the businessman versus Steven Spielberg, the guy that wants to help his friend out, but also knows a, dead on arrival thing when he's seen it. And so Spielberg is making suggestions about how we can make it more likable or, but you can kind of sense that Spielberg knows it's hopeless from, from the beginning, but wants to say great job, Brian. So, Oh, Scarface, Scarface is the other one that people would know that he did. That's I guess a classic of its type, but yeah, so a pretty interesting book. Like I said, Jake's son doesn't need to read it. It is a warts and all portrait of pretty debauched in, in industry. And it's not like it's going to focus on anything Totally nasty. Just things on the level of casting the women for their bottoms or some of that kind of stuff. This The woman journalist that wrote it was apparently just a good fly on the wall and um, had her eyes open but was able to sort of blend in enough that she got to see a lot of things that I think you don't get to see usually when you watch little documentaries on movies or when you watch the documentary on Star Wars and they're all talking about the magic and everything. It's like This is a much more... Well, the corporate executives showed up today and this guy had these hopes and dreams and everybody was fighting. And I don't think it's just because this production was horrible or anything. I think actually, even though the movie didn't work out, the production was kind of standard. It's just, you'll get a window into what a real, it's not like Robert Downey Jr. and his friends all got together to play. That's not actually how a movie's ever been made. A bunch of executives and businessmen and people with power and people with sex and people with everything else got together and did a bunch of things and maybe there was some creativity in there somewhere. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a really interesting book. So I'll get back to you with the CIA book, but that is The Devil's Candy by Julie Solomon. Widely agreed to be the definitive portrait of a movie from start to finish that has ever been written because she just, for whatever reason, De Palma trusted her and she had complete access. The only person that wouldn't give her, the screenwriter wouldn't give her access and Willis wouldn't give anybody access. So she can only speculate about Willis. Um, but you still get a pretty funny portrait of, that's the other thing, actually, it is funny. If you like to, as I do sometimes, if you like to watch rich, powerful people behave in horrible ways, you will get a little bit of that schadenfreude from this book. Just uh, if you're the kind of person that wonders what the real Bruce Willis is like, or what the real Tom Hanks is like, or some of these kinds of things, what it would be like to spend a day on set with them, then this book will answer those questions and you won't emerge with more respect for almost anyone. So that's my book. Cool. And if you'd like to tell us books to read or articles to talk about 
You go to patreon.com. Get access to the real us. Get access to the real us. Find out what we're like behind the scenes. Warts and none. Because we don't have any. What you see is what you get with us. We're yeah. perfect. Yeah. One of us might be. Perfect? Mm. Jake, you don't have to say that. How do you do it? You go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity and sign up. You'll be part of our Discord. You can get other cool prizes. Yeah, that's all. Leave us a review. What should the review say, Ben? Review should say thanks for playing the game of life with your favorite uncle Goober. Thanks for playing the game of life with your favorite uncle Goober. Who (laughs) is my Number seven favorite frisbee. <laughs> this is a great review. I should probably actually say something more like the show is interesting and cool, and it made me laugh. And it made me think about some things more carefully as a Christian, and I like hanging out with these guys. That's probably what I should say. But I don't know. That first that first take was not. Did you get all yeah, of that? Not bad. So you yeah. have to start with. The Uncle Goober stuff, and then you have to end with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yeah. Well, until next time. Stay sane.